And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, March 14th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, what the government could do to mitigate identity theft. Plus, the NSA has advice for protecting the smallest elements in the nation's critical infrastructure. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Technology Modernization Fund turns five years old this month. Upon the anniversary of the passage of the Modernizing Government Technology Act, the Biden administration is asking for $200 million for the TMF in fiscal 2024. Claire Martirana, the federal chief information officer, and Raylene Young, the executive director of the TMF, tell executive editor Jason Miller about the impact of the fund, how it helped agencies get out from under their technical debt and improve citizen services. You hear Martirana first. TMF celebrating a five-year anniversary is really a huge milestone for us. We've been investing in IT modernization projects that have real human impacts on the ways that the federal government provides services to the American people. We work hard to make sure that we're increasing public trust and making it easier for the American people to get the services they need. And I know Raylene has some really wonderful statistics to share with you. So today, we've really come a long way in in the last several years. Uh, We managed nearly $700 million in active investment for 38 investments across 22 federal agencies. Um, And 27 of those investments were made with the historic American Rescue Plan funding that was received just a few years ago. And in total, to date, the TMF has received and reviewed more than 220 different proposals, which total over $3.5 billion in total funding um, in demand for the fund. So Pretty impressive stats and and really incredible progress, especially in the last few years. I was going to actually ask about that because that's been one of the big changes. I know, Claire, this goes probably before you and maybe even before Raylene had gotten to your current positions, but there was a lot of hesitation from agencies whether or not they wanted to apply for TMF. Do you get a sense that over the last few years, agencies are not only more comfortable with applying for funding and asking for potential loans, but they're, they're, they're better at what makes a good investment and why? Talk about that growth. It has been really clear that there's demand, right? There, There's absolutely no question based on the numbers Raylene shared that IT modernization, cybersecurity, customer experience, um, and legacy IT issues challenge every single federal agency. So TMF under the American Rescue Plan with our historic $1 billion investment has really um, changed how agencies think about TMF. And when we were able to change our repayment um, model from 100% repayment to some flexibility for agencies that had very specific needs, it really um, had agencies leaning forward and leaning into TMF where they might not have previously. And Raylene, from the uh, on the ground perspective, what are you seeing maybe differently as agencies are submitting their proposals? I know you all work very closely with them. How have those proposals also evolved over the last you know couple of years? I think something you mentioned around working just really closely with the agencies. I think that's also been a big change in the last few years. We've meaningfully kind of grown the the TMF program. We expanded the board and added new members and obviously added subject matter experts to the team. So that's given us just an increased ability to engage 
quite early and often with agencies who are interested in the TMF. One concrete example is previously agencies would, you know, submit a proposal and it would go to the board and they'd have to go through this kind of full process right away. But over the last year, we introduced a new process that enables agencies to get started in a very lightweight, quick way, where sometimes they can take only 15 minutes and submit some basic information and get hands-on advice and support from the PMO, um, which enables them to kind of really engage more deeply on the work and, and have a great, you know, kind of discussions and conversation with the board. And roughly how big is the board today or the program management office, I should say, and what kind of subject matter experts have you brought in over the last you know, year or so? We know cyber, customer experience and the like, but maybe if you could go to the next level down of where they're focused on or how they're helping agencies get better with their proposals. On the program management office's side, you know, you mentioned CX, you mentioned cybersecurity. I would just say we provide a kind of general technical support, helping agencies take a more agile approach to their uh, modernization plans. Um, and that's been a really big focus is just looking at how to break down the projects, ensure that incremental impact is achieved as they embark on their projects. And I guess I would just add on the board side, you know, we really have a very well-rounded board that are used to managing the complexities in the federal environment from, you know, procurement, the challenges uh, we often have with making sure that we have the contracting vehicles in place, the staff able to work on the program, the leadership support. So making sure that we're not as um, IT executives building something and hoping everyone will come, making sure that these projects are thinking dynamically about the change management, not digitizing bureaucracy, really reinterrogating their entire business process in an agile way with human-centered support to make sure that we are shipping the most important and complete projects on time with milestones that are previously identified and we manage our funding to those milestones. So I think the board has really focused on adding those types of evaluations to our um, process. And at the same time, Claire, can you maybe also talk a little bit about how those the conversations on the board has changed over the last couple of years? I mean, you were over at OPM previously, then you moved over to OMB. So I'm not sure you had, before you came to OMB, any experience with the TMF board, if you were just more kind of narrowly focused on OPM, or if you had some of that government-wide. Can you get a sense of how the board is looking at these projects differently, how they are, where maybe something two, three, four years ago would not have made it to the, risen to the top, but today has? Any, any examples come to mind? Yeah, absolutely. You know, our investments, we measure success. And I think that having technologists and all of these experts interrogating a project up front, it really benefits an agency's team to have outside people who might not be as familiar with the subject matter expertise of a project really being able to ask and focus on the features and benefits, right? What are the the metrics that are going to be focused on? like cost savings and avoidance that, you know, time saved by either the end customer or the public or federal employees, um, if they're the customer set. Process improvements, like reinterrogating 
all of the activities that go into a program before just lifting and shifting something. We're really re-interrogating business processes, looking at making sure our data is protected, the systems are consolidated, that there's sunset plans for the older IT that is no longer going to be used, and then making sure that we're really measuring user impact and customer satisfaction are really key parts. And with some of the payment flexibility, I think we are really seeing teams leaning into um, building an MVP, validating their technical requirements, making sure that they're on the right path internally before they go ahead and try and stand up and build an entire system. They're doing all of the really rigorous work up front. And that actually, you know, we're really excited because we can see how that is driving down failure rates. Claire Martorano, the Federal Chief Information Officer, and Raylene Young, Executive Director of the Technology Modernization Fund, speaking with Federal News Network's Jason Miller. You can read their column exclusively at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the NSA has advice for protecting the smallest elements in the nation's critical infrastructure. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. You could think of integrated circuits, chips, as the smallest building blocks in the nation's critical infrastructure. Recently, the National Security Agency issued detailed guidance on keeping what it called adversarial influence out of microelectronics used by the Defense Department systems. We get more now from the technical director of NSA's Cybersecurity Directorate, Neil Ziering. Neil, good to have you back. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. And in this new guidance, we're basically talking about something called field programmable gate arrays, and that's a branch of semiconductor that can do different functions depending on the software you basically dump into it. Just describe this technology for us so we can get a sense of what it is you're aiming at here. Sure, Tom. FPGAs are a very flexible hardware component. They can be used for all sorts of functions in all sorts of systems, right? They can be used to accelerate networking, communication, cybersecurity. And the main thing that makes an FPGA important for defense systems and other systems is that they bring you the speed of hardware because they are essentially reconfigurable hardware, but with the flexibility that's closer to software. As you noted, you can put a new firmware load into an FPGA and have it perform a completely different function, but at hardware speeds. And in the DOD context, are these mainly used in embedded systems where they might want to change the characteristics of it or, say, programming a missile to do this instead of that, and then you hit the gate arrays, or where else? Well, they're certainly used in weapon systems of all kinds, and they're also used in communication systems. For example, you might have a military radio, you know, software-defined radio, and you want to update it to support a new waveform or a new type of signal, you can do that with an FPGA. And these are programmed by 
putting them or sending a signal to them, which downloads software to them. Years ago, they used to be erasable with ultraviolet light. There was like a window on top of the chips. Is that still the case anymore? No, I remember those types of uh, UV erasable proms, but uh, that's not common anymore. With most FPGAs today, they would be part of a larger assembly. They would be a microelectronics component on a board, and there would be a memory on the board that at system startup would load the firmware into the FPGA. And that process is very fast. And what is the risk, therefore, that the wrong software could somehow find its way into the gate array and therefore it would not do what the operator intended it to do? That's correct. That's a primary risk. And the documents that we've published over the last couple of months go into more detail on the threats. But a primary threat is that since these devices are so flexible, an adversary might intervene somewhere in the life cycle from design through assembly and so forth and either degrade the functionality of the device or introduce incorrect functionality. And that's exactly the kinds of problems we're trying to help folks to avoid in this published guidance. So besides the act of programming on site or at the moment after in use, there's the danger that they could come with original sin, so to speak, from a firmware built in at manufacture that could change one bit every two years or something. I'm making this up. But that you wouldn't be able to tell that until something went wrong. Yeah, that that's a, a good point. I mean, a FPGA has to be programmed. Somebody has to create that program, that hardware design to load into it. And that comes from a set of tooling and so forth back through the life cycle. And problems could be introduced at any point in that life cycle. And some of them can be very difficult to find in testing. So that's why it's important for program managers and integrators and so forth to pay attention to these threats. And that's what we're trying to help them to do. And then mitigate those various threats at sort of all the points along the life cycle of this device. We're speaking with Neil Ziering. He's technical director of the Cybersecurity Directorate at the National Security Agency. And what, in general, is the advice you're giving? What can people do along the supply chain until the field programmable gate array is in use? What are some of the steps that operators ought to take here? Oh, there's lots. The first thing they have to do is understand the system that they're trying to protect and understand uh, how it's built and where it is using FPGAs as components, and then understand their criticality to the overall system function that is being delivered, whether it's a weapon system or a radar or a communication system. And then the documents that our experts have written lay out uh, uh, three assurance levels based on the impact that any kind of degradation or compromise would have on the overall system function. And then you walk back through the life cycle and say, I have to protect my initial designs. I have to evaluate the intellectual property that I incorporate into my design. I have to protect it on its way from the designer to the manufacturer. And those steps are all laid out in detail for the different assurance levels in the documents. And let me ask you kind of, well, two in-the-weeds question. One has to do with risk management, because in a given system, say an airplane, take it up to that level or a ship or something, there are gate arrays used in a variety of subsystems, some much more critical than others. And since these types of platforms operate on a bus, is there the danger that a gate array in a low-risk system could somehow find its 
evil into the bus and thereby affect a higher level or higher risk subsystem gate array. Oh, that's a really good observation, Tom. And that's an important part of understanding the risk to the entire system. So you're quite right. A component that is on the bus of, say, an airplane or on the network on a ship could be compromised and then allow an attacker to move laterally to a more important or more critical component. And that's part of understanding how a given component, let's say it's a particular board with an FPGA on it, how that fits in the overall system architecture and therefore what assurance investments the uh, manufacturer, the integrator, the designer should take when they're building it and designing it. So it is not a simple like chip-by-chip exercise. It's really something that requires a holistic risk picture of the system in which the component is embedded. And my second in the weeds question is with respect to the presidential executive order for agencies to obtain software bills of material when they're buying software, S-bombs. Do gate arrays come with S-bombs since they're software controlled or should they? Wow, that's a great question. So software bills of materials are a great thing and are really going to help software assurance. There is an equivalent for something like a field programmable gate array, and that it would be an inventory or a bill of materials of the intellectual property blocks, as they're called, that are incorporated into that design. For example, if someone's designing an FPGA to run on a bus, they probably won't design their own bus controller circuitry. They'll obtain that from a manufacturer or an intellectual property provider, and they'll just plunk it down into their design. Well, they have to think about where did that come from, how was it tested, how was it assured. And one of the documents in this series is a guide on how to perform that evaluation. And then you would incorporate that list of, hey, what intellectual property blocks did I incorporate would be incorporated into the bill of materials for that entire system. Sure. And by the way, is there any evidence that this potential problem has actually been a problem with field programmable gate arrays? So I can't talk to particular sort of compromises, but I can talk about this general problem that's affected microelectronics, including programmable parts like FPGAs, and that's counterfeits. That's been a problem across the industry of counterfeit parts that don't have the full functionality or the full reliability of the real part And that is one of the threats that we think about in these documents and how programs and integrators can avoid counterfeits as a problem. Sure, or stolen parts that end up on the gray market and then therefore back into the supply chain. Yeah, those two. All right. And this is NSA that has issued guidance for the Defense Department. Is there any tie-in with NIST guidance maybe for non-DOD agencies that also have systems with FPGAs? Not directly at this time, and I should also say that this is guidance that is coming out of NSA, but it was really written in collaboration with other members across the DOD of the Joint Federated Assurance Centers, and there are centers at the Air Force and the Navy and so forth, so we collaborate with them. There is no NIST guidance down at the sort of deep technical level of FPGAs at this time, but, you know, we have a close partnership with NIST, and the... uh, risk management guidance that NIST has you know, been publishing for a long time would be relevant in all of the risk analysis for systems of this kind. And this now is in the hands of all the people that you feel should be looking at it? Yes. Well, we're not quite done publishing the entire series, but uh, yeah, 
we have put the documents out there. They're out on nsa.gov as well as jfac.navy.mil. And our experts who work in this area are connecting with other parts of the DOD via the JFAC to make sure that the programs that are working on highly critical hardware know that this guidance exists and can gain assistance in how to apply it in their critical programs. Neil Ziering is Technical Director of the Cybersecurity Directorate at the National Security Agency. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to some of that guidance at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, why do so many contractors leave the federal market each year? But first, what the government could do to mitigate identity theft. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Despite industry and government efforts, identity theft still hits tens of millions of Americans every year, like 22 million records just in the last quarter of 2022. That's according to the latest Breach Dashboard, compiled by data company TransUnion. For more, we turn to the company's senior vice president for the public sector, Jeff Huth. Mr. Huth, good to have you on. Glad to be here. And give us some highlights of what your dashboard is showing. Tell us maybe a little bit about the methodology that you use and what we know about the amount of records that just keep getting purloined. Yeah, I think the important part of this is just the sheer amount of records, the sheer amount of risk that's created. And we do this on a regular basis, and we're looking at breaches. So this comes from a company that joined the TransUnion family called Sontic last year. Um, It's all about consumer protection, identity theft protection. But as a result of that, they also look at breaches and they look at the risk and the severity of breaches. So looking at it from a breach perspective and the risk and the severity, we're able to assess essentially how much information has been released and what kind of risk that could pose to anybody and really the focus here being public sector agencies. And so the focus on that is, you know, 22 million more identities in Q4 became at high risk. And really the big one there is medical identity theft, which is kind of an important thing. So that's a significant number of records that have been breached on people that could be used to purvey that kind of fraud against public sector agencies. And what is the source of those? Is it mostly CMS, Social Security? I mean, there's a lot of medically connected agencies. I suppose you could look at it as anyone who is using identity information, using past medical information to conduct some form of fraud. It could be Medicaid, it could be Medicare, it could be veterans benefits, it could be any of those that might be done with you know the federal government. I think the important point of that is the amount of information that's available puts that category of things at high risk. But really, it's you know other things that are high risk as well. The government issued document theft which is really using that to steal someone's identity and uh, take benefits that might be useful for someone else. And do the data thieves go after medical records, not because they care whether somebody has eczema or not, but because medical records are associated with location, with social security number, and with payment methodologies? 
That's correct. Like payment methodology, so medical identity theft, again, being the most pervasive, biggest risk could be used for a variety of different purposes from a fraud perspective. But again, you know, the point being so much information has been released. It's an increasing problem. The problem since we've been looking at this in 2020 is growing. The number of breaches are growing. The number of breaches indicate the amount of data that's being released is growing. And when that data is out there and able to conduct different forms of fraud, you know, it's something that we need to think about as a group in public sector. And I'm happy to see things like the anti-fraud proposal the administration put out recently, in particular, the focus on identity theft, the cybersecurity strategy talks about strengthening cyber. You know, that's all great and kind of dovetails nicely with us talking about, you know, kind of the risks and the threats that are going to hit our cybersecurity infrastructure and put consumers' identities at risk. Is there some sort of a ratio or metric between millions of lost records and the actual cases of individuals having their identities taken or misused in some manner? I'm sure there is. That's not an element that we've done in this particular research. That's, that is an interesting item that we should look at. You know, when information is breached, you know, there is a period of time when you start seeing that information on the dark web or you start seeing that information be used in certain kinds of fraud. And that's not an element that we focus on here, but something we should look at in future iterations of our report. And what do we know about the most common breach mechanism? Is it someone has administrator passwords they get in with or is it phishing or what is it? <laughs> Yeah, that would probably be a great one for some of the cybersecurity experts. But, you know, from what I've seen, what I've heard, it is typically, you know, people who are maybe not nefarious insiders, but people who are making mistakes. Uh, phishing attempts turn into open doors for hackers to exfiltrate data on individuals. And, you know, it, it's happening. And again, we're looking at it from the perspective of data breaches, high risk data breaches, high risk being the amount of information that's taken that can be used, uh, but it's happening across public sector and private sector at, you know, unfortunately, an, an increasing and an alarming rate over the last several years. We're speaking with Jeff Huth. He's senior vice president for the public sector at TransUnion. So it strikes me there's two issues here that the government has to deal with. One is making sure that the stuff doesn't get out and whatever their cybersecurity measures are. The other is, are there measures they can put in post facto such that even if someone wrongly has another person's individual information, they can't make use of it with two-factor or facial or whatever the case might be. Well stated. That's the recommendations that we're putting out here. We're looking at it in terms of the risk that happened, not just at the federal, but at the state level as well. And so, you know, states will be doing things around administering certain benefits programs, but the risk is still there. It's not uncommon to hear that if hackers or a fraud group have attacked a certain area and they are no longer allowed, they'll just move on to something else. So we see that, you know, happening in the public sector the way that the private sector sees that. Again, it's a problem that keeps growing federal and state level protecting the identities of the people, making sure to provide a friction right experience, we talk about it. So how do you throw up enough barriers so that you can prevent fraud, but also not make it difficult for people who are completely normal accessing things that should have access to it? So a friction right um, experience that states and federal government should be implementing, as well as how do we try to deal with this from an overall cybersecurity perspective? And again, I think that's kind of the two things and we've seen out of the administration recently, the identity theft and anti-fraud proposal, along with the cybersecurity strategy, you know, kind of addressing those two elements that you talked about. Right. And in your experience working with clients, what does an ideal frictionless type of safe experience look like? Because you can ask people to answer 16 challenge questions, probably not ideal. 
that's really true. And questions can themselves be discovered, unfortunately. So them questions, knowledge-based exams, they would be called in the industry by themselves are not necessarily the best form. It's truly, you know, now we're getting into a little bit of the technical parts of it, but it's multi-factors. It's uh, things that you are, things that you know, things that you have uh, point of view. So think of an experience where you may be uh, trying to access an account, state agency, federal agency. You have to assert who you are. Who better to than to ask who, if you assert who you are, than the people who are sort of the gold standards, the credit bureaus in the U.S. Is this really Jeff Huth? Is this really who he says he is. And then also look at the access that I'm using and the channel, the digital attributes that I'm using. Is there anything odd or nefarious or unusual about the way and the location or the device I'm using to access it? And then introducing things along the way, like, hey, we're going to send you a passcode to your phone that we have on record as an authorized phone from your carrier. So there's lots of different techniques like that to make the experience right. But in reverse, to kind of provide the friction right experience as well, it could be, oh, we've seen Jeff before. He's providing the same information before. There's nothing unusual about the channel by which he's coming to us. So we can take him down a different path because there are no quote unquote red flags along the way in terms of how he's doing things. So kind of looking at it from both, how do we throw down the appropriate barriers to how do we appropriately remove barriers for the people who don't need to be I'm yeah, stopped. so you really have to craft a careful approach to this whole ICAM identity access management, whether deployed to your own people or applications deployed to the public. That's right. No shortcuts here. And what about just uh, the idea of artificial intelligence infecting this whole process from the bad guy's standpoint? For example, suppose you need to submit, refresh your photo for your facial recognition periodically, which might be a good practice. And this time, you know, you can wear your glasses or not, whatever the case might be. It seems like there's an AI way around a lot of these particular measures. And I can steal that face. I can age it. I can put glasses on it. I can make it smile, whatever. Yeah, I mean, that's a, that is an interesting concept. Now we're getting a little bit outside of the report. But, you know, there are things like liveness detection around biometrics that are important. And that's you know, the idea that I can't just take a photo or a face or a picture and use it for a verification step. And I think that there's technology that should be, and, that, and that's the kind of stuff we need to look at, introduce, make sure that it's there from a fraud mitigation perspective, for sure. But in general, the topic of AI, you know, I, I'm sure that there's going to be both threats and opportunities for us to look at AI as we help to adjust the problem. Using it in terms of providing, again, that friction right experience, maybe AI could be kind of the human thinking in the loop around, well, do I introduce more here or do I trust less or do I trust more? It's all about trust. Start off with zero trust and then build trust. And getting back to the report, who should read it and what should the top takeaways be from it? Yeah, so who should read it? Anyone who is dealing with at state, federal level, of course, um, anyone who is dealing with a situation where they have to trust a citizen or trust a consumer who may be trying to create an account with them, trying to access services from them, uh, trying to assert who they are. Anytime that there is a threat that someone else could be using that information for nefarious purposes. So that's, again, any state, federal agency. And I think the takeaways from it are really understanding that, number one, that the amount of data that's available in a breach creates an opportunity for fraudsters to use that information nefariously against you with the notion that things like tax fraud, medical identity theft, and the, the government document theft. Those are, you know, important public sector 
avenues by which this information could be used fraudulently. So that's one. And it's also that it's not going away. It's not a decreasing trend. It's increasing. It's continuing. It's growing. And it has been grown. And we saw it a lot during the pandemic. And it's continuing to be a problem. Medical identity theft being the most common type that we saw in the fourth quarter. We'll keep looking at it and we'll keep assessing where it's coming from. We kind of want to be the canary in the coal mine when it comes to indicating what systems might be exposed when it comes to, you know, kinds of data that's been exposed in a breach. Jeff Huth is Senior Vice President for the Public Sector at TransUnion. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me today. I appreciate it. And we'll post this interview plus a link to that dashboard at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your shows. Still to come, why do so many contractors leave the federal market each year? This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Acquisition officials, especially in the Defense Department, worry about why the roster of would-be federal contractors seems to contract every year. Small companies in particular seem to be departing. It could be the ever-expanding list of rules are driving them away. We get perspective from longtime federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. And you're combining a couple of ideas here, Larry, in that commercial acquisition is giving way to commercial plus tons of federal rules. And that is what's driving companies that just can't afford the compliance anymore. Tell us more. Well, Tom, I'm here this morning to regretfully announce the obituary for commercial item acquisition in federal government. And while the government used to have a commercial first buying method, which attempted to mirror commercial acquisition practices, the reality today is that the way that the government buys commercial goods and services really bears little or no resemblance to how they're bought in the commercial market. And the result of that is reduced competition to specialized suppliers, higher prices because there are more hoops that contractors providing commercial solutions have to jump through and uh, a lack of innovation because truly innovative companies may just sit on the sidelines uh, rather than have to deal with some requirement that they do a robust check of all of their company's telecommunications devices to make sure they pass federal muster. Right. A lot of these rules and requirements have not been baked yet into the federal acquisition regulation, correct? A lot of them haven't, and that's alarming, Tom, because a number of them have. The one that I just referenced, the Section 889 Telecommunications That is. Those are in government contracts under an interim rule that we've been waiting for a final rule now for over two years. Uh, In the meantime, other things are coming right down the pike. The Department of Defense, for example, is expected someday to issue a final rule on CMMC, basically setting standards for how Contractors handle controlled, unclassified information, but also things like greenhouse gases, software attestation over at GSA, and whether and how 
you have good cybersecurity systems uh, in your network. Right. And I guess sometimes the government maybe doesn't fully understand the costs to businesses of complying with some of these requirements. Right. And they want to, at the same time, Tom, attract new businesses, particularly small businesses. This administration has a, an initiative to do more business with small disadvantaged businesses. Well, you can be a disadvantaged business of any stripe by having to pay more to comply with the new laundry list of government rules and regulations that impact your contract. You're going to have a very tough time attracting these companies. And as you applied implied in your opening time, you're going to have a tough time keeping some of the companies that have been in this market. It's expensive to comply with new rules. And we see businesses leaving this market every year. I talked to a small business just last week that's been in the government market for over 40 years. They're looking hard at whether or not they can even stay in this market. And the number one reason is the number of new rules and regulations that they have to gear up for, they just don't have the revenue to justify that type of investment. Well, what can companies do? What is the forum if they want to state this to the government? What's the best way to at least tell the government before you give up totally on the market? Well, I think one of the things I'm encouraged by, Tom, is that there were a number of responses recently on the administration's greenhouse gas rule. There was a lot of pushback, apparently, on the rule. And that's just one example that proves a larger point. If industry sees new rules and things that make it more difficult for them to do business, they need to speak up. Speak up either individually as part of a larger group of contractors, like an association, need to get involved in the regulatory process. They also need to let their elected officials know these jobs provide a lot of economic activity in your congressional district. Allowing new rules to go in every other day threatens these jobs, threatens our local economy. It's a message that absolutely needs to be put up and put up consistently. And I'd also recommend coming up with some Uh, recommendations for alternatives. You just don't want to complain about what's wrong. You want to try and come up with an alternative that people maybe can live with. This has worked in the past, Tom, when we've had people in Congress and in the executive branch who have been willing to have a true dialogue with industry. I'm not sure if we're in that place today, but I hope so. We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. To switch topics here, the Office of Management and Budget has a lot of modernization refresh ideas that are related to the Biden administration's national cybersecurity strategy, which came out just a couple of weeks ago. You're skeptical there, too, that a whole lot of modernization might take place because of that. I think it's a great goal, Tom. The Office of Management and Budget coming out and saying, we're really super serious this time about modernizing IT. Uh, Who couldn't be in favor of that? You know, we have the Technology Modernization Fund that's been around for a while. That's not the only way modernization happens, but it is one way, and it's one that's often touted. Significantly, the same week that OMB came out saying, rah, rah, we're going to modernize IT, the administration only put $200 million in the Technology Modernization Fund budget request for FY24. Uh, On the face of it, that's not a lot of money discreetly set aside for modernization. Put that, too, in with the idea that this is supposed to be a 10-year plan. Look, if you're in industry, and even in government, you know that a 10-year plan often can be superseded by 
events that come up over that lifespan take more precedence over the original idea to modernize IT. And also that you can modernize IT best when everybody's on the same uh, song page. But that really is never the case or very rarely the case in federal IT. The office management budget would like agencies to modernize in a certain way. Agencies feel they have a better idea of what their mission-specific needs are. Their laundry list may not match OMB's. So while I think this is a great effort, Tom, we've heard this song before. We've never gotten to the end of the tune. I'm not sure that we're going to get there now. Well, quite a number of the applications and awards from the Technology Modernization Fund, and don't forget there was a non-appropriated or appropriated via non-regular appropriations, I guess we should say, billion dollars from a couple of years ago. have trouble keeping track of them all, but which is not used up yet. But a great many of those awards did have to do with cybersecurity, and agencies have made progress there, and if that's a big piece of modernizing. Oh, I think we're making we're making modernization in steps, maybe not leaps and bounds, Tom. I'm not sure that we need another OMB program to do it, but uh, now we have one. You know, when I wrote about this for my newsletter this week, I put the title down that had something like, I think we've heard this song before. It doesn't mean it's a bad song. Uh, it could be a great song, but what it means is it's really not anything new. So I think in order for this initiative to be successful, there's going to have to be more than a headline, more than a press release. It's going to have to be a daily effort that OMB works on in coordination with the agencies. And I guess maybe the other interesting question about the TMF is that even at a billion dollars, it's only 1% of what we presume agencies spend across the board on information technology. And if a lot of it is for modernizing, including updating cybersecurity, why can't agencies find 1% from what they're doing on average to do that without the TMF? Well, I think that's a, a good question. But it's a question, I think, Tom, that should not just be asked to CIOs, but should be asked to chief management officers. You know, it's not necessarily only a technological hurdle or a technological issue. Sometimes it's a mission issue, whether or not you've got an agency that has internal mission priorities that the IT has to be tailored to meet, or whether there's some congressional or executive branch policy that agencies have to dedicate part of their budget to meet those requirements. So it's not just a technology issue. If it was, I think you could probably solve it, but it's mandates on where that technology spending has to go sometimes driven by other than technology-based realities. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners, as always. Thanks so much. Tom, thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. Especially those small companies. And we'll post That's this right. interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. One in four uniformed military members worries about going hungry. That's according to a new RAND Corporation survey, which confirms regular surveys conducted by the armed services themselves. The Pentagon's top enlisted leaders tested, testified about the issue of food insecurity at the House Armed Services Subcommittee last week. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr has more. And Alexandra, tell us more about the survey and why it came to be. 
Well, every two years, the DOD conducts a status of forces survey of active duty members. And that survey includes six questions from the Department of Agriculture that that specifically address food insecurity. Do you get enough to eat? Can you afford food? Are you able to eat a nutritious diet? Those sort of things. And the results aren't in from 2020 yet, but in 2019 or 2016 and 2018, they did find these high numbers of of service members with food insecurity. The profile goes like this. Uh, Food insecurity members are more likely to be early to mid-career enlisted personnel, grades E4 to E6, say. They're single with children, they're married without children, and they're a racial or ethnic minority. They were also disproportionately in the Army and, to a lesser extent, in the Navy. And what was the genesis of the RAND study itself, since the armed services do these themselves periodically? The NDAA actually ordered a study of this to kind of find out where the military was on food insecurity. And then the Department of Defense commissioned the study from RAND. Right. So it's kind of augmenting the work that the military does regularly to determine how much food insecurity there is. That's right. There are just so many different levels of pay in the military that it gets a little complicated, and they tried to figure out where the problem was worse and how it happened. Now, in theory, anything that is a problem for the enlisted ranks is a problem for leadership. And what does leadership say about this? The problem's been around for a while, and the rising house housing prices in the last year and inflation in general seems to have made things a bunch worse. Here's Master Chief Petty Officer of the Navy, James Honia. A place like San Diego, California, where we had an increase in housing costs there and greater than 26 percent. Uh, our most junior service members do not make enough money uh, to make ends meet and to have an emergency savings in reserve to handle that kind of an increase while they waited for us to catch up with our BAH increases uh, to offset those expenses. So many of them found themselves deep, well deep into their savings, and, and it's certainly understandable why many of them found themselves food insecure. And I guess the question is, how do they know who might actually be in need of help? Because everybody lives in the same area for a given base. Everybody at a certain level gets the same salary. Yet it seems to be that different people are in different circumstances. You know, that's something that the senior leaders seem to wrestle with. They admitted that it's a little hard to figure out who exactly needs help. The RAND study showed that members' use of food assistance programs was only 14 percent of those classified as food insecure. So 14 percent of people who needed it were were actually seeking assistance. There seems to be some stigmas associated with it. They're ashamed to ask for help. And then also, members are concerned that seeking help for food insecurity or even financial challenges can affect their security clearances. Here's Chief Master Sergeant of the Air Force, Joanne Bass. You know, the numbers are really hard to track. We've been trying to figure this out for the past several years. Um, Some of it is largely in part because, you know, you only understand the numbers of people who might self-identify, but there's a lot of folks who perhaps won't self-identify that they need assistance and help. Um, And so we've really engaged our uh, command teams our first sergeants, to help us ensure that we are getting a a really good look at um, what's going on at, at the grassroots level. And presuming there is food insecurity, as the surveys indicate, 
what are they going to do about it? What did the military leadership, I mean, the people testifying were the top enlisted people, but they're not the ones that can necessarily divert resources to it, like the brass can. That's right. And there are a lot of different levels of pay in the military, and there are different benefits designed to do different things. So they kind of have to figure out where to attack the problem. Service members get a basic allowance for housing, and that's just intended to pay housing costs. The problem is, like Master Chief Honia said, in a year when housing prices go up really quickly, the BAH can't keep up with it. So last year, for example, in September, there were those huge housing crises, and the military went ahead and increased BAH on a temporary basis until their new yearly assessment came up in December. And it's only calculated once a year, so there's always a problem of Will it go up before the year's up? And then if it does go up, people have to pay out of pocket. The other problem comes when a family's assessed for SNAP. SNAP is the Supplemental Nutritional Assistance Program that's available to everyone, not just military members. But when they calculate it for military members, they include their BAH as part of their income. So it increases their income artificially beyond money that they actually have to spend on food. Here's Sergeant Major of the Army, Michael Grinston. Until we take a holistic look at our pay, we may continue to see the need for soldiers to be food insecure. But I also want to say that no soldier should ever have to go and skip and miss a meal. No soldier, no family should be food insecure in our military. And I do want to thank uh, this committee and everyone for the basic needs allowance and allowing us to increase some of the pay for our service members. And I know that's just recently been put out, and we've just released the Army guidance on how to apply for the basic needs allowance. So I'd like to thank this committee for that. And what was the reaction of the committee? Well, the committee also is very concerned about the the food insecurity, and they were driving the questions on it and asking what can be done and how bad it is. A new thing that they started this year was the basic needs allowance, and it's sort of an extra amount of subsidy meant to close the gap on poverty for these families that fall through the cracks a little bit. There's a couple different things that you have to do to get it. There's an initial screening that the military does, and they notify you if they think you may be qualified for it. And then you have to apply, and you have to apply once a year to be reapproved for it. But that gives you extra money every month just to close that gap and make sure you have enough money to pay for food. Yeah, I almost wonder if there are certain military members that might be subsidized by their families, since they tend to be young, as you say, and many of them are single or young married. Maybe they can say, hey, you know, a hundred bucks a month or a couple hundred bucks from mom or dad might help them with food. Some service members may not have that resource available to them. Well, that's true. And there are lots of kids out there who are doing various things and their families subsidize them that way. The other thing the military is really pushing is being able to have spouses have meaningful jobs. And there are all kinds of programs out there to help them get jobs, because if there's a second income, that really alleviates a lot of the problems. And then, of course, the other major problem is child care. And with good child care, people can go work. You bet. Yeah, that can be an expensive big ticket item if not provided by the employer. Federal News Network's Alexandra Lohr, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Up next, the top national headlines from CBS News and the Federal Newscast. I'm Tom Tammen.